1: Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. Uh, and for all things Women to Watch, be sure to visit our website at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. Uh, I have a big announcement this afternoon, and I have a wonderful woman with me in the studio who's going to be our brand new ongoing contributor uh, to the show, financial contributor, I should say. And her name is Kristen Hillsley. Kristen is a financial advisor for Baird, and she's with the Foley Hillsley Group uh, in Bluebell. So she's a local lady here in the Philadelphia area. And I want to welcome her to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, my gosh. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm always talking about finances and doing the best I can to to talk intelligently about it, so I'm thrilled to have you as an ongoing member of our team to be able to really speak um, intelligently about money matters, and in particular um, around money and uh, women. Um, It's something, obviously, with, with women to watch. All of our conversations are around um, helping women to become leaders and perhaps move up the ladder with, within some of the corporations they're in. And so I know that you are going to be a wealth of knowledge for us. And, you know, when I was looking over my notes and kind of preparing for uh, the show today, one of the things I noticed um, is a question that you like to ask your own clients, and I thought I would turn it around and ask you, Kristen, what is important to you about money? Oh, my goodness. Well,
3: <laughs> it's funny how it feels to have the tables turned. <laughs> <laughs> You're on the other side I now. Know, I know. Well, I know um, for me what's important about money is to try and make sure that I feel in control and educated and secure. And I think almost every time we talk to clients, at some point they talk about security. And I think if you've ever been in a vulnerable or an insecure place when it comes to money or finances, it's very uncomfortable and it can be very painful. And um, I think that's why people really just want security and safety when it comes to their finances. So I think I'm no different. I want to have financial security. I, most importantly at this point, want to save for my kids to go to college. Um, we want to be able to retire someday. So, and, and something that's really important to us right now is making sure that, God forbid, something were to happen to my husband or I, that our kids are protected. Um, and so that's something that, you know, I'm a financial advisor. I should have that taken care of already but like many other people life happens and sometimes you don't get to things as quickly as maybe you would like to um and so that's something that's that's on our forefront is to um make sure that we have our wills updated and our trusts in place and
1: that's what's on our mind you you know i'm glad you said that because like one of the Um, important things to remember when we're thinking about money and trying to plan is that unexpected things do happen. So here you are, you're a financial advisor, and you're married, and you have two children, and you're probably doing all the right things, but we never know what's around the corner, right? Mm -hmm. We never know what can happen tomorrow. Um, Something I'd love for you to talk about just for a few minutes are some of the statistics that you know um, when it, when it matter, not when it matters, um, in pertaining to women and what some new numbers are um, in light of the fact that there's more single women. You know, sadly, divorce is um, on the rise and has been for, for a lot of years. So there's women out there that are finding themselves on their own and really needing to take control of their own financial matters. Um, talk about some of the statistics and numbers that you have learned. Um, that'll be kind of enlightening for the listeners.
3: Sure. Well, the interesting thing is there are really good statistics that are coming out now and there are still some challenges that we have to overcome. So one of the points that you were alluding to, which is a great one, is actually that nine out of ten women are going to be responsible for their own financial decision making at some point in in their lives. And, And that's a big deal. So it could be when you're first out of college and you get your first job or, unfortunately, you could lose your spouse through death or divorce. And, and those things, unfortunately, do happen. And so we have to be educated and we have to be prepared. And the good news is, I guess it's a double-edged sword, but the good news is there's so much information out there. But the bad news is there's so much information out yes. there. Yes. And it's hard to get get through all of it and make a good decision. Um, but some some of the good things, let's focus on the good first. Okay. Um, some of the good things, women are actually... Women in their 20s, um, single women in their 20s are actually out earning um, their male counterparts by about 8% per year. That's and fantastic. that is a great statistic. So that means that the the wage gap is starting to get smaller. So when I started as a financial advisor over a decade ago, it was maybe 70 cents to the dollar that we were earning. Now it's 82 cents to the dollar. So a working woman, on average, will earn 82 cents for every dollar that a man earns. So that means, ladies out there, you have to go ask for a raise. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the younger women um, are starting to earn more, and that's a wonderful thing. So, too, is wonderful that women um, are starting to um, graduate college at a higher rate than men. And that's not only true for college, but it's also true for uh, graduate degrees. And we love to see that because more college, more education means more money, and that's how we want to close that gap. But there are still some challenges that we have to deal with, and one of the challenges, which is a wonderful thing, is, you know, many women... Have have families and they want to stay at home and be with their family or with their children or you know god forbid you have a parent who's aging or in a situation where they can't care for themselves women tend to take off time to take care of their family members, and as they should be able to. Uh-huh. But that means, unfortunately, they're paying less into the Social Security system. So fast forward to when you're ready to retire and you look at your Social Security statement and you say, hey, why is mine less than my husband's? And it's because you're taking the time off, um and you're paying less into the system. And if you're taking that time off, you're also saving less. So the time value of your money isn't on your side the same way it might be if you worked
1: nonstop. Right. Yeah. And, and that's just something that, you know, is the reality of life, right, and, and families and, and what we have to do um, to get by. I'd love for you to end with... Your mission. I know that you have um, a a personal mission around the work that you're doing and why, in particular, you're interested in helping women, and of course, why you're a perfect fit uh, for us and, and to become a part of our team.
3: Well, that is so nice. Thank you. I I think that my mission is to be the go-to resource for women in our community and for the larger community to ask those questions. Because, like I said, it's it's just so daunting. I mean, there's a statistic out there that if the S&P 500 returns 10% a year, that investors on their own will only earn 5% per year. And a lot of it, I think, has to do with paralysis by analysis. There's so much information out there. So if I can be a resource to people, to say hey I heard this or I'm thinking this um, how, how would that impact me or you know my retirement or my this is really important to me how do I make it happen there is no better job in the world than to be able to help people, um, going back to my original comment to, to help people get away from that vulnerable situation of, am I financially secure and bring them into that confident situation of, I do feel secure. I do feel confident. I can do this. And if I could do that for people for the rest of my life, I would be a happy camper.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's the, the most important thing is that, that we can do it. I think a lot of times people look at, um, the economy in general and, and the world and where we are, and think is it attainable? Is it something I can really get a hold of my finances depending on where I am on the spectrum uh, of income and and you know what position i am uh, what my family position is. And can I do it? And, and the truth is you can. And that's what you're going to be doing. You're going to be helping people to know that no matter where they are financially, they can get a handle on things and really, you know, live the life that they want to live. Mm -hmm. Listen, I'm so looking forward to having you on the show every month. And uh, I'd like to say thank you to Baird, of course, for um, signing on as a sponsor of the show and helping us bring these wonderful stories to our listeners. And we'll look forward to having you back next month to talk about another topic. Thank you. It's such a pleasure and such an honor to be here. Thank you, Kristen. And now I'm thrilled to invite to the show uh, my very special guest this afternoon. Uh, joining us today is Kathy Lanier. And Kathy is the Senior Vice President of Security for the National Football League. Kathy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having
2: me. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Nice, almost spring-like weather.
1: It is. It is. Are you calling in from Washington?
2: I'm calling him from the Washington area. Yes, I we am. Are.
1: Okay, so we probably have a very similar forecast for today.
2: Yes, yeah, it's beautiful out. <laughs> it, it is.
1: It is. It's great. Listen, I'm, I'm so excited to have you today. You and I have spoken um, a couple of times before this show, and I think you have really a very, very interesting story in addition to having uh, an incredibly impressive career, which we're going to get into and, and talk all about. Um, what I'd love to start with is, is – for you just to talk for a few minutes about your upbringing, um which was in Washington, is that correct?
2: Yes, yeah, yeah
1: talk, just talk for a few minutes about what you know what it was like growing up in Washington and a little bit about your family dynamic.
2: so my um I see my parents married right out of high school. My mom was a secretary. she went to uh, work for the federal government right out of high school. She married my father, also nineteen uh, who was a firefighter. Um, they lived right in the Washington D.C. suburb there um, in Prince George's County, Maryland. Had three children. I'm the baby and the only girl, so the last of the three. Um, you know, at, at that time back, and they got married in 1958. So, in the early 60s, not too different than today. It's very difficult for uh, you know young couples, especially a, a secretary and a firefighter, for for that that income to pay for childcare for three children why they worked Mm, yes I was born my mother um, took a leave of absence from work uh, so she could stay home and take care of the three kids at least until I was old enough uh, to kind of be a latchkey kid you know old enough to come home from school for a few hours by myself Um, about two years after my mom had left work and I was about two years old we went on our family vacation and when we came home uh, from vacation my father was gone so my mother uh, was left with three kids and really no income. Uh, mm-hmm. I think my dad ended up paying like $300 a month, $100 per child and so that's kind of what we lived on uh for the next 10 years. Um so it was a little, little challenging. We weren't in a great neighborhood, it's so a little bit of a rough neighborhood. Um but you know, as a kid, I you know, you don't really think about it. You know, I I never felt like I was missing anything. Uh, Besides my dad, of course, uh, growing up, my mom was a wonderful mom. She was always there with us. She helped me with homework. Uh, You know, I went to school as a great student in the talented and gifted programs all the way through um, to the seventh grade. And mom was there to take us to soccer practice and majorette practice. And so it was kind of nice having my mom there. And then uh, just about the time that I was trying to become a young teenager and, and transferring into um, junior high school, uh, back then, seventh grade, junior high school. Uh, my mom went back to work, and she went back to work because she wanted to make sure we had opportunities and had some of the things that we we didn't have a chance to get. But it was, unfortunately, as you would imagine, not a great time for me to lose my my mother and you know, my caregiver, and you know, just not a great time for teenagers to to not have someone there in the mm-hmm. afternoon when you come home from school. So, right. um, when my mom went back to work um I started to kinda of get in trouble, you know, skipping school, uh, you know, just getting in trouble. And um I went from a straight A student and talented gifted program to failing two classes by the end of the eighth grade and, and fa- I failed solely on attendance. I just I just kept you know, so I say about when I was a in my last career as a police officer, um, children or at such a disadvantage, um, once they started to become truant, the uh, same thing happened with me. I you know, started skipping a little bit of classes here and there to be with my friends, and then when you're in algebra class and you miss a couple classes, it's hard to catch up. Right. So after I had started to become a little bit truant, uh, skipping a couple classes here and there, then I couldn't catch up, and then I was embarrassed because I couldn't catch up. So then I didn't go to school because I couldn't catch up. And mm. so, um, you know, everything kind of started to fall apart for me there. Um, so I didn't run away from home when I was in the ninth grade, uh, you know, like, uh, maybe too many teenage girls. I thought I knew everything and didn't, <laughs> didn't listen to my mother about anything. Um, and I ran away from home and got married and, uh, I had my son when I was 15. Wow. So, I you know, it was just not, not a traditional, a good traditional start, but, um, you know, but a year and a half later, I found myself, a you know, a 16 year old single mom. Uh, you know, with with a ninth grade education, so I wasn't in a good spot. Right,
1: right. Well, <clears throat> you're a great example, Kathy, of you know having a tough um, start. That that's one of the toughest way to start out, isn't it? To be a young woman and a mother, um, not even a woman, right? You were a teenager, and look look where you are today. But you know, I'm curious as you were t- telling your story, do you think you you know when you kind of started to go astray, were you just experimenting? Um, or w- what do you think it was that took you off track?
2: Well, I think it was a couple things. I, I think it was a lot of it was kind of what I tried to describe. It's just, you know, my mother was this great, you know, people always think that, um, you know, I learned this in policing when I was uh, in the police department. People always think that people who live in poverty, that live in welfare, that somehow they're they're poor because they choose to be or They're too lazy to work. And, and, and I tell that story about my childhood, starting with my parents being married, because my my, we didn't live in poverty because my mother cho- chose not to work. I mean, she was loved her job as a secretary. And in fact, when she went back to work after a 10-year break in service, she went back to work in the same office working for the same boss that she left, and she stayed there 30 years. Wow. Um, but situations happen. And I was listening right. to your financial advisors before. Sometimes you, you things happen that you can't anticipate or prepare for. And so I think the The fact that I was in a challenging area, I lost my my mom, my parent, my guardian, you know, at a time when I was just, you know, a vulnerable teenager, and then just kind of became rebellious, you know, just like too many young girls, you know, just becoming a teenager, you think you know everything, and... you know, my my poor mother. I, I people always say, you know, you have such a great story. And I always look at my mom and I say, see, mom, <laughs> was always a bad story. Right. Uh, always now, a great story. right
1: now, it's a good story. Now, well, yeah. listen, so, every yeah, every story is is it it is what it is, right? And this this happens to be your life story, but it, it is inspirational because you know. Talk to me a little bit about you know being that mother and having that baby. What where what gave you? Um, the fortitude to um, work through that time in your life and not kind of just roll over and say, gosh, you know, poor me, look where I am now. You know, I won't be able to make something of myself.
2: I think that all goes back to the fact that my mom built that great foundation. You know, again, something I saw so often in policing is that, you know, children, you know, between the ages of zero and five, that's when you you're the vast majority of your vocabulary and your ability to learn is, is molded and my mom was always there and she you know she helped me with how I was reading before I went to kindergarten and I was you know because mom was always there with me she was always helping me she, she, so she built that you know just that solid groundwork that you know, what's important and what matters and I used to watch my mom when I was a kid when she wasn't working, she would sit in front of the television with her little um, shorthand note tablet, and she would take shorthand to the TV to keep her, her shorthand skills up. She did 95 words a minute in shorthand. Wow. And then she would sit at the That's table, fierce. and she would type type it all up. And right. uh, so, you know, when I was a kid, she would like get my favorite records, and she'd write them all up in shorthand and then type them all up and so I could read and sing along with my – but that was my mother showing me what good work ethic was. So. Yes,
1: yes. So it all goes um, back to her. That's
2: really, yeah. Really, I mean, it really does. And I'm a remarkable, remarkable woman. And, you know, I realized when I, when my son, when I left, uh, you know, the, my marriage and which, you know, as you would imagine, lasted about with any 15-year-old uh, getting married. My husband at the time was 26. And I, you know, I ran away from home to get married. Wow. Um, so when I got, I remember, I'll never forget when my, son was born, I laying in this in my bed in the morning in this hot little cramped apartment. My son's crib was at the bottom of my bed. I had never even babysat before my oh son my was born. Gosh. So it was really an interesting wow. yeah. experience learning how to be a mom. Yeah. I remember looking up one morning, he was such a good such a good baby. He would just lay in his little crib and just look at me. I'd wake up and his eyes would be open, and he'd be just looking at me. And uh I remember looking at him one morning and just making that connection and I thought, you know, it just hit me that, you know, his whole life depended on me. And here I was with no education, you know, living in this crappy little apartment and no opportunity and no education. And I said, you know, I've got to do better. I got to make sure he doesn't have, he doesn't have to go through what I went through. I, you know, being a a person who loved education, loved school, um, I was bust into a very, very bad neighborhood, which is kind of what helped push me off track a little bit because going to school was just such a difficult experience. So I, I knew I didn't want my son to go to public schools. I wanted him in a good school. And so, I tell people, you know, like that minute, you know, that minute when I made that connection that you know, he was so dependent on me. I just everything I did from that day forward, every single thing I did was to to make sure that he was taken care of and that he had what he needed. And um, you know, I went back to school. I got my GED. Uh, got a job working at the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington D.C. because specifically because they had tuition reimbursement. And I wanted to go back to college and get some college education, and uh, you know, and I just started working from there. And I looked up one day, and uh, you know, I had two master's degrees and wow. had worked my way through the top of the organization, and uh, all of which was really driven by you know just knowing that I wanted to make sure he was taken care of. Wow,
1: wow! I can almost see that moment that looking at his little face. Right yes, um, and that'll, <laughs> so, that'll always be fresh in your mind. it's amazing yeah. now, now who ha, you know was there someone guiding you and helping you um during that transition with the decisions and what to do you know how to go and um get your degree and and with this small child i mean who was who was supporting you i guess uh,
2: really kind it, of a i you know I was fortunate that my my grandmother when when my dad left my grandmother. And grandfather helped my mom uh, with everything they could. I mean, they didn't – my grandmother was a secretary also, so they didn't really have much money. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they did everything they could to help my mom. And then uh, when it was just my grandmother, my grandmother and my mom – my grandmother retired, what, 32 years out of federal government. And she, when I come back home with my son, she said, that, I'll retire. I'll take care of your son you go back to school and, you know, get your education. And then, so I I started working as a secretary initially. I started working as a secretary um, in a building in Bethesda. My mom actually taught me how to type on the kitchen table. My grandmother would babysit for me in the evenings. Uh, I would go to work as a waitress. So a secretary during the day, waitress at night. My, between my mother and my grandmother, they babysat for me. My grandmother during the, my grandmother during the day, my mom at night. Okay. And uh, I worked two jobs, and, uh, I, you know, I just started getting exposed to um, people outside of my little tiny world. And uh, yeah. so it's something that's so important to take people out of just their own environment. And um, I got a great job as a secretary in Bethesda, met some uh, very good people, good professionals that mentored me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, just uh, I, I worked hard. I went to school, and, you know, I, <laughs> I always tell people when I got in the police department, yeah, I, I took promotional exams, and I moved through the ranks pretty quickly, and uh, people say, well, well you know, you just wanted to be the boss. You I said, you know, really, I had no desire to be a supervisor or a manager when I started taking those promotional exams. I always thought, you know, every time you take a promotional exam and you move up a rank, there's that many less idiots to tell you what to do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> That's a good motivator. <laughs>
2: You, but you really learn a lot. And, right. uh, you know, I knew education was going to be important. And I had a lot of good people around me that kept telling me, get your education, get your and I, And I think my mother, in her mind, she knew that the tough times we went through because she was stuck. Um, she had just her high school diploma. Mm-hmm. Her only skill was a secretary. And she felt like she was stuck and couldn't do anything to take care of her. So my whole life, she's you pushed you know get your education it's so important get your education yeah
1: yeah i hear i hear that so often um and you had quite a bit of education um you went to you're a graduate of the fbi national academy um the federal drug enforcement administration's drug unit commanders academy is that are those two separate um schools
2: okay so the fbi national academy is a is a you know a Pretty soon after um, National Academy, is done for the FBI. they get about 300 people that go through that class mm-hmm. a year. And um, the DEA, Drug Enforcement uh, Administration, uh, Drug Unit Commanders Academy, I was one of the first and only young women to run a major narcotics branch here in, in Washington, D.C. So right. yep. I went through that academy. And, um, you know, all the time I was doing that, I was getting my formal education um I, I did a lot of piecemealing at first, uh, community college, Prince George's Community College, and then uh, a couple other community colleges. Then I got into Johns Hopkins yeah. and did a bachelor's and a master's uh, degree in management at Johns Hopkins. And then I finished my second master's, uh, oh, 2005, second oh. master's degree in uh, national security and security.
1: Right. Do, do you love learning?
2: I do. I yeah. do. And, you know, I've been out of school now for, like, yeah, 12 years 10, you'll probably years.
1: go back <laughs> I,
2: I will <laughs> right? I, I will. know I will yeah I really miss it
1: I bet I bet and okay so tell me the the moment you made the decision that you were going to go into law enforcement when did that come to you
2: so you know it's funny because I have my whole family's kind of public servants my father was a firefighter two older brothers one a firefighter one a police officer. Um, I really didn't have this burning desire to go into law enforcement, uh, you know. My whole life, like a lot of my family did, you know, I was perfectly happy being a secretary and working. But I saw an ad, and I was taking one class a semester at the at the Prince George's Community College. It would have taken me like 95 years to get my degree. <laughs> um, I, I saw an ad in the Washington Post that uh, said that the D.C. Police Department was hiring and that they had tuition reimbursement. I thought, wow, if I could take two classes a semester or three classes a semester. Um, so I went down and took the test. That was back in 1990, and anybody from the Washington, D.C. area knows back in 1990. That, the city was really just – that's when we had about 500 murders a year. Mm. Um, so it was a very violent place. Yeah, yeah. You so spent- that's when I, I went took the test, and I walked with the first 1,000 people in the room, and I, I ended up placing pretty high – I think I, I placed like 60 on the exam, and I got hired right away.
1: Okay, well, that takes um- – some bravery, you, you you make me laugh because you're very matter of fact about, you know, the, the work that you've done and really the success that you've had. But, you know, to to make that decision based on um, uh, the the money that you would get for your education is one thing, but to decide that you're going to go, you know, be a policeman in, in a city that really, you know, was a dangerous place at the time. Um, where did that courage come from? Is that a toughness that you just have always had?
2: Well, you know, I think I think all the tough stuff came from my grandmother. She was tough. My yeah. grandmother was tough. She was just a tough lady.
1: <laughs> good stock. Was she from good stock?
2: She really was. Yeah. It, and then kind of by default, my mother. My mother's a very passive, sweet, uh, you know, kind, gentle person. If you think about what she went through and her perseverance and her never ever letting anything Take priority over taking care of a family. I think Mm. that's, you know, don't I? Don't think for a second I wasn't, you know, terrified. My first week on the job, out of the academy in Washington D.C., I was deployed to the uh, the Fourth Police District, and that was the first. My first morning was the morning after there had been a fatal police shooting, and there was a riot in a Mount Pleasant neighborhood. So I went to work my first day, and I stayed at work for seven days because we were in a a massive riot in Washington D.C. Wow. it, it, so there was many many nights not just during the riots but after that when i walked a footbeat uh down in washington dc by myself um white female not many white females in the department at the time it was mm-hmm. you know the city was um predominantly african american um so there was there was plenty of challenging get your guts together moments but i also um i also knew that i loved the job almost immediately because of the opportunities that i had to to interact with people who Much like my family, found themselves in poverty through no fault of their own. Right,
1: and you, right, that's right. You saw that firsthand. Um, So you spent 27 years with the Metropolitan Police Department, and uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to hear a couple of um, stories that have stayed with you from uh, from those years in that role. We'll be right back.
3: This is Kristen Hillsley, financial advisor of the Foley Hillsley Group, with a big announcement. Last fall, I hosted a Women's Lifestyle Conference to help the women who do it all take control of their finances. Now I'm excited to an- announce a new partnership with Women to Watch Media to help show women how to own their financial future. We'll have newsletter articles, blog posts, announcements of live events, and a lot more, all available at womentowatch.net and our own website, Group.com. I'm thrilled about this new partnership and I look forward to being your resource for all things financial. Stay tuned to learn more or visit our website at foleyhillsleygroup.com The Foley Hillsley Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird and Company member SIPC Log on to foleyhillsleygroup.com to learn more. That's F O L E Y H I L L S L eygroup.com or call 610-238-6636. There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy. We offer the latest technology like 3D mammography and automated breast ultrasound that help find cancers in dense breast tissue. Plus our same day readings mean same day peace of mind. Make today the day you schedule a mammogram. It's easy to request an appointment online at holyredeemer.com slash mammogram. Since
1: 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual I'm pleased to announce the opening of the region's newest, most innovative gynecology practice in the Philadelphia area in mid-November, Montgomery Gynecology. Led by Dr. Hema Janogada in a welcoming boutique-style setting, she and her team are committed to providing the highest standard of cutting-edge care without losing the personal touch that is so very important in today's world. With a particular interest in minimally invasive surgical options, Dr. Hema completed advanced training in robotic surgery and is one of only two surgeons in Montgomery County who performs this highly specialized single-site robotic surgery. For more information on the opening of this exciting new practice in the convenient Plymouth Meeting location, go to www.montgomerygyn.com or call 215 444 3411 That's montgomerygyn.com or call 215-444-3411 to make an appointment today. Welcome back everyone to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB, Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. We're also on 104.9 FM now. Uh, Before we get started again, I want to quickly give our call-in number if you're listening to the show and you'd like to call in and uh, ask a question of Kathy. The call-in number is 888-329-3306. That's 888-329-3306. Uh, so Kathy, we were d- talking about your role in D.C., um, and as I mentioned, you did, you spent 27 long years, I'll say, there in that role. Um, I One of the things I was curious about, I, I would imagine, you know what you're doing in a in a role like that, and what you see every day is quite different from uh, the jobs that a, a lot of us are in. And I'm wondering if there was any one particular experience that you had that really stays with you. You know, one of those days where you say, "I'll never, I'll never forget that day."
2: Gosh, there are so many. Uh, there really are. There's so many, and I, I guess I should say, unfortunately the vast majority of the ones that really stick with you that you never will forget as you know are the the really tragic the really tragic uh, cases um many of those I, I saw as an officer coming up through the ranks but they touched me much more when I when I was in the chief's role I spent 10 years before I left as the chief of police and I really Fought my whole career, and then when I finally got the chance to be the chief, to really change policing, to try and change the way we interacted with people in our communities, and change our ability to be effective and really protect people. And so those tragic cases that happened when I was a chief will stick with me forever, just because I interacted so much with the families, and um, you know, just to to watch the tragedy from from start to finish is so different than it was coming up to the ranks when you'd respond to a call of a homicide or a, a shooting and, and you'd see the victim in the heartbreak, but then you'd be, be on to the next call. And as the chief, because I put so much into trying to turn around the violent crime in the city and, and to, to really engage and show support for families, I stayed in contact with parents and children of really horrific, violent crime, and, and to see just the impact it has has on people's lives over years is Mm. just unbelievable. But there are some, you know, light, kind of fun uh, moments that that I will always remember as well. I mean, living in, working in Washington, D.C., I always tell people there's no place in the world like being a police officer in Washington, D.C. It is the nation's capital. You know, I was there for Obama's inauguration. I was actually the lead uh, Metropolitan Police Front lead planning group with the Secret Service to plan that event. Uh, an amazing thing to see 2 million people come into the city for that inauguration. And mm. interesting things also. Uh, nowhere else in the world is like Washington.
1: Yeah. T- describe for me your um, your state of mind when you're working those kind of situations where there are millions of people, um, you know, coming into one particular area.
2: <laughs> you're holding your breath i mean right you uh you know you know that the, we put a lot of time and effort into planning and you know I, i've spent my whole you know life trying to continue to build my experience and education to make sure that when we put a plan together that we've thought of everything and that we're thorough and that we things don't go wrong and um no matter how confident and you are and your, you know your team and everybody is done everything they possibly can on game day you kind of hold your breath and you just pray that you've thought of everything um so you know i was always a very diligent uh planner and 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 trying to make sure those things go well we don't really enjoy them until they're all over i bet <laughs> when yeah. it's all over then yeah. you look back at the photographs or the video that you see on tv and you go wow it really is uh quite an amazing thing that that you know you were able to be a part of yeah
1: and, and that you've done your job well. Um, well, let's talk about. So you you get a call um, regarding uh, becoming the head of security for the National Football League, and I read an article where you were describing first, you know, your thought about uh, I want you know are they reaching out to me just to be kind of the token female interview interviewee um, for this role, and then you went through a very rigorous uh, process. Um, You described your four trips to New York, 16 interviews with league officials, and, you know, how eventually they convinced you to take the job. Um, Tell me what that was like, you know, through that whole process. Were you slowly becoming more and more intrigued? um, Or was it something that, you know, when you initially went and and sat in that first interview, interview, you thought, gosh, this is something I would love to tackle?
2: Well, you know, I took it's funny because I had just committed to staying in my, you know, as a chief for ten years, I w- I had worked for three three different mayors, and I had just committed to the mayor that I'd stay with her for her uh, the remainder of her four years, and I really had no desire to go anywhere else, or and I would get. Um, Contacted by large search firms every couple of months for you know big city chiefs jobs. You know they, there's just a handful of big city chiefs, and so you know I get those calls. You know Chicago, New York. You you interested in in applying for Houston? I think uh, was one that came right before, and I never entertained any of them because I just loved my city. I loved what I did, and I never felt like I would go anywhere. And, you know, uh, looking for another chief's job, and so when this letter came in, uh, it was a letter first, and then I got on the phone and I spoke with him. I, I thought, yeah, interestingly, I had a conversation with one of my deputy chiefs, who is now the chief, actually a good friend I've come up through the ranks with, and he says he had been applying for a job, uh, chief's job somewhere else, and he says, he goes, it's really tough out here. He says, when was the last time you had a job interview? And I said, twenty-seven years ago. He says, well, you know what? <laughs> Because next time you get a, one of those search firms call you, you want to go through the process just to see what it's like. And ironically, the next day the letter came from the NFL. So oh, I thought, wow. well, if this is as good a shot as any. But yeah, that sounds first, like fate. <laughs> right. Yeah. So my first trip up to New York, I really had. I was. I was reading about the NFL on the internet because I, had, you know, had to try and learn as much as I could uh, on the way up. Cause I didn't want to go in and you know, completely blow an interview. And uh, from the from the first interview, I mean that first day. I think I met with four or five people. Um I was fascinated by the commitment to a person from everybody that I interviewed with um about their commitment to not only the highest level of security but into to changing the image that had been created uh, that the NFL with with the Ray Rice case that the NFL was um you know not sensitive to domestic violence and not uh, serious about you know, the, the security of, of families. And, you know, so I just just really fascinated with their level of commitment to really change that image of what uh, NFL security is supposed to be and uh, what they're supposed to do.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> yes, the you know, there's this perception of the NFL, uh, absolutely, as, you know, this, this man's club, and there's been a lot of issues. Uh, around domestic violence uh, within the NFL, what, tell me how what are, how do you plan on tackling that? Not that you know, image is not specifically your area, but um, how can you help to change that perception and that image? Well,
2: you know, it's one thing I found out about this line of work is, is that you know, even in the police department, um, we had an image in Washington D.C. as being the murder capital of the world, and we worked so hard to drive down that violent crime and the homicide rate. And 10 years after, you, you would still hear people say, oh, it's the murder capital of the world. So changing that image was really a large part of, of our job. We had to make sure that people understood that. So there is a, a really key part of what you do in security and in policing um, that is you know, making sure people know what the reality is and changing those perceptions. I don't want to say marketing, but marketing. Um, you know, the the bad stories get out very easily, and they get retold all the time. And there's a lot of great things that happen, a lot of good things that happen, and, and those stories don't get told. So I think too often people in security and policing get tunnel vision on the bad stories, and they forget to tell the good stories. And so part of my job is going to be to make sure that not only do I make sure that the security department is, is run – the best in the country, but that those good things that happen, uh, those good stories do get told because I see them every day. And so that's part of what I, what I, I see as my, my role there.
1: You know, you have a tremendous amount of responsibility. You know, I was reading really what this position encompasses, and it is managing game day security, um, unruly fan behavior, guarding against uh, game fixers and gambling. Um, of course, uh, well-intentioned I shouldn't say well-intentioned but potential terrorists um, domestic and foreign and investigating allegations of uh, misconduct among players and staff and that's across all 32 clubs that seems like a lot a lot to be managing Um, how do you tell me how you rely on others and your team um, to help you get all of that done
2: Wow, you've done your homework. <laughs> 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 a woman my own heart. Um, so it is. A, it really is. A I think the my experience in Washington was tremendously helpful. We, you know, Washington D.C. is a place that there are thirty-two law enforcement agencies, and you have to really work well with other people because you can't do the job alone, and you have to to do it through teamwork and multiple agencies. And so, I think that's where women have a little bit of a adv- advantage in that. You know, we we approach things a little bit differently, and so for me to get my job done now, much like in Washington, you know, I have to rely on the security directors for the teams, uh, you know, the, direct, the security directors for the stadiums, the owners of the clubs. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is a it is an interesting uh, process that, you know, the stadiums security, even though I'm responsible for overall security of the games the stadiums, all have uh, different types of ownership and who runs it. Some are owned by the uh, the club owners; some are owned by and governed by by the state, the the government, uh, and some, uh, you know, are private. So, we have to accomplish what it is that we need to accomplish in security largely through others. Um, we do the investigative work out of, out of my office, mm-hmm. but we do have to rely largely on those partners to uphold the standard that that we at the NFL uh, establish. So. Right. My job is to do that research and make sure that I'm doing the research and putting my experience to, to work and making sure that everybody understands what the cutting edge security pr- practice should be and that everybody's following those practices. Um, but but I tell you, it's having planned, you know, extremely large events in Washington for many years. I'm part of planning four inaugurations. Um, the Super Bowl <laughs> is is definitely a, a an experience like no other. Um, so. I, I, I think I got a, a little bit of a challenge with my first Super Bowl, but, uh, you know, I, I love a challenge, and it's just um, learning how to get better at something that I've been doing for a long time in a, in a whole new environment. Right.
1: Um Something else that's going to be a challenge, and this is um, this this question actually came from my son. Of course, I, I told my son I was going to be interviewing you, and first he thought that was incredibly cool, uh, the senior vice president of security for the for the National Football League, and he said, "Mom, you know, th- here's a question for her: are, sh- are you worried about the future of football with players like Terry Bradshaw, Brett Favre, and Adrian Peterson?" coming out and saying that they're leery of letting their own sons play the game?
2: Oh, again, you know, I, I raised a son, and I remember when my son uh, who's a, was going to play football. And even long before, you know, the issues that have come out uh, about in the last five or six years, uh, as a mother, certainly mothers look at things a little bit differently. Uh, mothers was was, you know, reluctant to let my son play football back then. But I think again, here's the where I think that I've been struck by the commitment of the NFL. Um, they have doctors uh and researchers and uh on the sidelines. I mean doctors there to uh make sure that, you know, they're the the players have the best equipment, have the best medical care, the best opportunities and it's a tough sport, don't get me wrong i you know I just read another article uh about you know other sports uh soccer with head injuries and uh you know these are tough sports, but I think the fact that the n f l is so committed to making sure that they do everything they can to to protect and then support their players mm-hmm. um you know it's a tough profession, you know I went into policing. Uh, back in in 1990, when when people were shooting police officers all the time, and, and the bulletproof vest was not common issue, um, but survivability and inability to do the job effectively without getting hurt has gotten much much better over the years, and I think it's it's doing the same with the NFL. So they put a tremendous amount of effort into to doing that, and I hope that makes a difference.
1: That's right, and and gets better, you know, as 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 things move forward. Um, by the way, I. My son did play football, and we're, I'm a huge fan of football. It's, it's an incredibly exciting sport, but, if, you know, you want to see um, everybody be safe. Um, Kathy, one of the things that you have said is, I'm hoping that this hire means something to young women in terms of fairness and opportunity. Was there a, um, an experience in your career where you felt you were treated unfairly? Oh, Lord. And how did you uh, handle I- it? Because I'm guessing Yes.
2: When I started in the police department in the 90s, um, it was a tremendously hostile environment. I mean, the women were still not accepted. And here's an interesting thing for younger women who are listening. When I started in policing in 1990, I was born in 1967. Women in my police department were not allowed to ride in marked patrol cars like the men until 1972. So I was already five years old. So in my lifetime... Women were not allowed to do the job that I ended up not only doing but becoming the chief of police for that same department.
0: Right.
2: so things have changed tremendously from when when I started uh, in policing, but I, I have to tell you the culture back then was it was just a really tough uh, sexual harassment was rampant, um, not just from uh supervisors but from peers uh, It was a pretty brutal environment uh, initially but at at a certain point when i was a young sergeant working um, working the night shift i had a supervisor a high-level supervisor who was really just the sexual harassment was just uh, out of control and it it wasn't just with me it was with you know the the other few women that were there and finally i was just as a single mom so afraid that i was going to lose my job uh, i wouldn't file a complaint a sexual harassment complaint because i thought you know i had a male Co-worker who said, "When are you going to do something about this? Everybody sees what's going on." And and to have a male co-worker, who had witnessed some of the harassment, say to me, "Hey, what are you doing? Why aren't you doing something about this?" That was um, a
1: great thing. What a yeah. You know. And I
2: tell you, I have to tell you, even though it was an it was very much in you know a different environment back then when I filed my complaint. I had kept notes, uh, and I gave the names of 16 or 17 different people who had witnessed various elements of the harassment. They were all men and when i walked out of that complaint process i said none of these guys are going to tell the truth and do you know every single one of them went and told the truth and and so so my sexual harassment complaint was sustained mm-hmm. and and I, I say to now you know 20 years later looking back that women find themselves in that environment there are a lot of really good men out there they're just as appalled by that behavior and those men, unfortunately, back in those days, sat silent until this one officer, you know, coworker said to me, you got to do something about this. But they were so glad that I did, because I found later that many of those men, you know, their girlfriends and their wives, uh, and they had daughters even, and they didn't want that, to see that happening to the people they love. So right. there are men out there that sit silently that want you to, to, to fight that stuff. And, and that really motivated me. And, and it really was a kind of a beginning of a change inside the police department because that that started to change the way they looked at that harassment so yeah. um you just got to stand up for yourself sometimes right. and it was a, it was a tough environment but I wasn't about to let somebody run me out of a job when I had a you know a child to raise
1: right good for you and you know i i i hope we see more men i i think one of the best ways to get more men to speak up is to um, remind them about their mothers their wives their daughters their sisters Right. I think um, I think just in general, women tend to really speak out and up against injustice and men tend to be a little bit more quiet about that. And that's, you know, that's a generalization. But um, the conversations around it, um, I think, are happening more often and creating an environment for men to speak out more. There's I mean, there's campaigns around it now. So,
2: um, you know, not to not to, to throw rocks from a glass house, you know, I when I did file my complaint and it became public other women started to come out of the woodwork and I had a young a very young woman who had served as a cadet there who said to me the same man had harassed her um several years earlier when she was just 17 and and I thought to myself you know shame on me for waiting so long and allowing it to go on so so long because once I did you know file that complaint and, and people saw that I was successful. Women came out of the woodwork, many of which involved in the same, you know, the same limited number of, of predators. Uh, but but still, I, you know, women were waiting for somebody, another woman, to speak up as well. Right. So. Right.
1: Um, listen, I have a, I have a question from one of our listeners. Um, you know, we just saw the first NFL ref being hired, female female NFL ref being hired. Um, what do you think we might see next? Do you think we'll ever um see and if so, how soon a female coach, a player perhaps?
2: you know i I do think I think a female coach is definitely something that that we'll see in in our lifetime. and i you know, I just was at the the pro Bowl, and you know i oh. I have to tell you, there were some pretty impressive uh, women's teams playing at the Pro Bowl. I couldn't believe uh, just how uh, good they were. There actually was a – and they got my attention. I was working, so I don't really get much chance to watch the players. uh, But I was working, and someone said to me, you know, one of the female players uh, that just won that game – because uh, there's multiple games going over the several days of the Pro Bowl, um, is a homicide detective, you know, back from your home state, and I, you know, learned that there was there was a homicide female homicide detective from a police department close by where I worked, that was playing football. So wow. there are plenty of women out there uh, that are playing as close to pro football as you can find. <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs> it's amazing to me. I am far, far from. Uh, a, a woman who could play football. I mean, it's just amazing it's to me.
0: Sport.
2: <laughs> it is a tough sport.
1: Did you play sports, Kathy, in school?
2: I, You know, I did. Uh, I always played soccer. Uh, you know, my mother made sure I always had something to do uh, when I was a kid. So I played soccer, I played basketball, softball, and then I get into uh, majorettes. I was a majorette for about six years. Um, so I, I stayed very active and involved in stuff, you know, growing up. Until I became that, you know, know it all teenager, then I right. kinda of dropped all of it.
1: <laughs> right. And how about your son? Tell me about your son. What's what's he up to today?
2: So my, my favorite son story, he hates it when I tell a story. Uh, he is so I <laughs> hopefully you know, he's was not sort of, listening <laughs> to oh, the I'm show. Sure he's not. He's <laughs> he's definitely uh, uh not listening to radio. Um so he uh, my son is I worked two jobs for a while. I told you I got him into private school, a uh, little Catholic school by where we lived, by the first grade. Because, again, I lived in a pretty tough area, and the schools were kind of rough. So I got him into private school between my mother and my grandmother buying bonds. They used to buy bonds for my son uh, when they both worked in the federal government. We were able to keep him in private school all the way through high school. He graduated from Damatha Catholic High School. First person in my family to go directly from high school to college. He went off to Frostburg. Um, so, you know, all that hard work, uh, to, to make sure he had a good education all paid off. He finishes school at Frostburg and he goes to work in retail making like $8 an hour. So <laughs> 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 I, I, I could have. I, I say that now, and I only say it because he is very successful. He is now, you know, a regional manager. Uh, he is uh, in the cell phone industry, and he's done very well for himself. But mm-hmm. you can imagine, <laughs> after all the struggles to put him in private school and college and all the vacations I didn't take, when he when he came <laughs> to college to work in retail, I wanted to just choke him. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, as you know, kids have a mind of their own, right? We can do all the right things, and um, kids are just, you know— they, they, they're just kids.
2: Well, you know, and the funny kids. thing was he wanted to work in retail because of a girl that he liked, and college oh, went well, through, there so you he found his girlfriend. <laughs> That, who can blame them? I mean, that's what you do when you're young and you're exactly. teenagers. So.
1: Right. But if you get, listen, if you give them that foundation, they they circle back around. They see the light um, and, you know, they go on to do the right thing. Um, Kathy, listen, I'm so grateful to you for coming on. What a great show and a great interview. Um, and I know how busy you are. So I appreciate your taking an entire hour out of your day to share your story. Uh, I'm sure it was inspirational to some of our listeners. And I wish you such success um at the nfl and i uh, hope you'll stay in touch with us
2: well thank you for what you do for women and thank you for your persistence and i am going to hop off that train in philly one of my trips on the way up to new york and just come and say hello to you and oh, good. I'll introduce myself oh, oh, good. good. meeting you i appreciate
1: that thanks so much kathy All right, take care, Susan. Take care. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Here on WWDB Talk 860, 104.9 FM, and womentowatch.net. Have a great week, everyone.